Well, hello, Spark. So good to see everyone here today. Uh, I want to give a little shout-out. Uh, one of my coworkers is joining in by Zoom today, Brian Yu. So, Brian, thanks for joining us today. My name is Tom. I'm one of the pastors here at Spark. And today we're going to continue in our sermon series on the books in the Bible that are considered to be wisdom literature. And these books help the readers consider how to live wisely. We looked at the book of Proverbs and discovered that it has hundreds of short and clever ancient sayings that offer wisdom. For example, Proverbs 10.27 says, The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Now, a simple reading of Proverbs tells us that God is wise and just, and that God has ordered the world so that it is fair. Meaning, if you do the right thing, you will be rewarded. And if you don't, well, you will suffer. In other words, you get what you deserve. But the truth is, Proverbs is more complex than that. And those sayings, they are not promises. They are not guarantees. And you need to consider what's going on in each individual proverb, in each individual situation because circumstances matter. You have to think. We discussed the book of Job, where God allows the righteous and good and trusting Job to be tested by Satan. That's what the story says. To the point where Job loses everyone and everything he cares about. It is a devastating story. It is. And remember, Job deserves none of this. God himself said so. And Job's friends insist that he must have done something wrong, something awful, because they believe, like the simple message in Proverbs, that the universe is ordered and that things happen for a reason, where actions have consequences. And we can see the same assumption being used in the New Testament in John 9, verse 2 where it is written, before Jesus heals the man born blind, he is asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? This verse shows that at that time, in that day, the notion that some negative circumstance, such as suffering, is a result of sin. That was, what, that, that was thought at that time to be perfectly reasonable. And so Job, he struggles because of the supposed biblical portrait of order and justice. And yet, as we know, the everyday world fails to align with that. Where the divine pattern of conduct, conduct, of getting what you deserve, is not actually reflected in one's experience. And that will make you think... We read portions of the Psalms which seemed easy and bright when we looked at the Psalms of ascent and praise. But the Psalms of lament were different. They were real and they were raw and they were full of confusion and anger and doubt. And this brings us here today to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes has a lot of similarity with the Psalms of lament and the book of Job. This book is so honest about the realities of faith and struggling with faith. And when 
God and faith just doesn't make sense. Pastor O'Meara started, started us off in this book last week, and he said that there are two voices in this book of Ecclesiastes. There's, first, there's a wise character, wise as in sage, a wise character in this book named Kohelet, which is a Hebrew word for teacher. And Kohelet, he doesn't even pretend to see order and justice in the world, but instead he calls life meaningless. He says that life is temporary, that life is absurd, where there is so much beauty in the world, but just when you are enjoying it, tragedy strikes, and it all seems to blow away. And the second voice in this book is from an unknown author who starts Ecclesiastes, and then he lets Kohelet make his case for most of the book. In fact, the author apparently feels so strongly about what Colette has to say that he lets this teacher express his point of view for 203 of the 221 verses in the book. That's a lot. Colette speaks for 92% of the book. But once Colette is done, the author's voice is heard again as he closes out the book in chapter 12, with an important and final word. He says, Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads, They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no no end. And much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. I love how the author calls out this teacher as being wise. And if you've read Ecclesiastes, you may be thinking that this teacher is anything but wise. Because Kohelet is kind of depressing. Pastor Omir called called Kohelet last week a Debbie Downer. And you may not want to read this book. It's hard to read. The author says that besides Coelette being wise, he also taught people knowledge. The text says he pondered and he searched to find just the right words. And what he wrote was upright and true. Words that were honest. Words that made sense. And words that were uncomfortable and hard to hear. Where bad things happen to good people. So life is constantly unpredictable and unstable. That's the point of verse 11 here in chapter 12, where it says, The words of the wise are like goads, collected sayings that are firmly embedded with nails, firmly embedded nails. What is a goad? A goad is a long stick that a shepherd uses to poke sheep with to get them to go in a certain direction. And to really make the point, quite literally, 
because a shepherd might embed a nail at the end of the stick and then poke the sheep, which would really hurt, but it makes them move. The author is saying that the teacher's words are hard to hear and painfully true because life is challenging, right? And this is contrary to the literal readings of Proverbs where it says that everything will work out well if you follow that simple formula, that if you do A, you will get B. And the sad truth is that life isn't always fair and just. It's not. And the author is saying, get over it. Because this is just the way it is. So suck it up and move on because all has been heard. And do what matters. Do what's right. And what's that? Fear God and keep the commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In our Christian language today, we may say something like, no matter how bad things get, keep trusting in Jesus and following that path. No matter how many horrible things happen, no matter how much agony you are in mentally, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, keep going. Keep following Jesus because Jesus is faithful. We all know of Moses and the Ten Commandments. And some of us may know that there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And every week we sing about the greatest commandment. But here's the question for today. You read and hear about these commandments, but what do these commandments mean to you? How do you read them? How do you interpret them? And how do you live them out, especially today in our particular place and time? Adam Grant wrote a book called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. He says that when people reflect on what it takes to be mentally fit, the first idea that comes to mind is usually intelligence. You know, the smarter you are, the more complex the problems you can solve, and the faster you can solve them. Intelligence is traditionally viewed as the ability to think and learn. Yet in a changing world, there's another set of cognitive skills that might matter more the ability to rethink and unlearn. But unfortunately, we hesitate to rethink our thoughts and opinions. And in fact, we hesitate at the very idea of rethinking. Part of the problem, according to Adam Grant, is something called cognitive laziness. Some psychologists point out that we are mental misers where we prefer the ease of hanging on to old views over the difficulty of grappling with new ones. Yet there are also deeper forces behind our resistance to rethinking. You see, questioning ourselves makes the world more unpredictable. It requires us to admit that facts may have changed, that what was once thought to be right may now be wrong. And reconsidering something we believe deeply can threaten our identities, making it feel as as if we're losing a part of ourselves, and that can be scary. But here's the thing. Rethinking isn't a struggle in every part of our lives. 
See, when it comes to our possessions, we update with passion. We refresh our wardrobes when they go out of style and renovate our kitchens when they are no longer in vogue. However, when it comes to knowledge and opinions, we stick to our guns. Psychologists call this seizing and freezing, where we favor the comfort of conviction over the discomfort of doubt, and we let our beliefs get brittle long before our bones. Adam Grant wrote that we laugh at people who still use Windows 95 And yet we still cling to opinions that we formed in 1995. It's a long time. And for some of you who are younger, maybe much younger, maybe you formed your opinions in 2005 or 2015. But here's the point. We listen to views that make us feel good instead of ideas that make us think hard. And as we sit with our beliefs, they tend to become more extreme and more entrenched. At some point, you've probably heard the story that if you drop a frog into a pot of scalding hot water, the frog will immediately jump out. But if you drop the frog in lukewarm water and gradually raise the temperature, the frog will die, right? Why? Because the frog lacks the ability to rethink the situation and doesn't realize the threat until it's too late. Well, I did some research on this and I found out that this popular story isn't true. (laughs) You see, the frog tossed into a scalding pot of hot water will get burned badly and may or may not escape. The frog is actually better off in the slow boiling pot because it will leap out as soon as the water starts to get uncomfortably warm. It's not the frogs who fail to reevaluate. It's us. Once we hear a story or a belief and accept it as true, we rarely bother to question it. In psychology, there are at least two biases that drive this behavior. One is confirmation bias, which is seeing what we expect to see. And the other is desirability bias, which is seeing what we want to see. These biases don't just prevent us from applying our intelligence. They can actually contort our intelligence into a weapon against truth. Scott McKnight wrote a book called The Blue Parakeet. Rethinking how you read the Bible. And he would agree with Adam Grant that we all tend to think and learn with biases. And he suggests in his book that we absolutely do this when we read the Bible. Scott McKnight says that we pick and choose through the lens of our theology. And at its worst, we use picking and choosing as a license to find what we want and ignore the rest. This is hard to admit, but it's true. And as readers of the Bible, we need to face this problem squarely and honestly. McKnight says that some people read the Bible as if his passages were Rorschach inkblots. They see what is in their head. To say it differently, they project onto the Bible what they want to see. 
if you show them enough biblical passages and you get them to talk about them, you might find out what is important to them, whether it is in the Bible or not. They might see in the Jesus inkblot a Republican or a Democrat because they are a Republican or a Democrat. Or they might have discovered the inkblot called Paul, a wonderful pattern for how to run a church, which just so happens to be the pastor's next plan. But the problem is, reading the Bible as an inkblot is projecting onto the Bible our ideas and our desires, finding our story in the Bible instead of finding the Bible story to be our story. There's no clearer example of this problem than the history of slavery in America. Here was an issue of indescribable moral importance, and the country was divided, with both sides citing citing Scripture in defense of polar opposite opinions. Jamar Tisby writes in his book, The Color of Compromise, that proponents of race-based chattel slavery would primarily argue from the Bible using Genesis 9, where Noah curses Ham's son Canaan for Ham seeing Noah drunk and naked and not covering him with a blanket. Noah says, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. According to Jamar Tisby's research, proponents of slavery would argue that this passage from Genesis not only provided a basis basis for slavery's existence, but it was an indication for some that God decreed a specific race of people to be cursed and live their days in bondage. How can it be on what should be such a clear issue that there's disagreement on how to read Scripture. Really? I mean, it sounds like clear bias to me. Someone with power wanted cheap, expendable labor. We read in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes that we should fear God and keep the commandments, for this is the whole duty of all mankind. But... We can't do this if we are picking and choosing and projecting onto the Bible our own ideas and desires. And if we take the instruction to fear God or to respect God seriously, we dare not ignore what God has said to the church throughout its history. This is important. But we also dare not fossilize past interpretations into traditionalism. Instead, we must think and maybe rethink because it matters. We need to be more like the, the more, we need to be more like the wise coalette who takes the necessary time to listen and study and search to find the truth. We need to have the intellectual humility to know that we know what we don't know and question our current understanding with the hope of finding new discoveries. We need to look at the full narrative of the Bible rather than picking and choosing verses that support our personal views. We need to consider the historical and cultural context, the genre, the language, and differing interpretations of the text. 
We need to learn from a breadth of books on, on philosophy, history, science, economics, language, and archaeology, just to name a few. In fact, Thomas Aquinas, an important church father and theologian from the 13th century, has been quoted as saying, Beware the man of one book. What he meant by this is that he feared scholars and theologians who only had a single specialty. He believed teachers and preachers needed to be a master of many subjects to be truly deep and thorough in their thinking and arguments, as opposed to being intellectually one-sided, which could destroy objectivity and impartiality. Pete Inn says in his commentary in Ecclesiastes that we need to be wise in reading the situation in the text and not simply the biblical text. Because sometimes the response or application to the text depends on the circumstance. For example, when Jesus gives the command to turn the other cheek, does it not take wisdom to know how and when that should be done? Does the situation or circumstance matter? Of course it does. What Jesus says is clear, but how Jesus' word should be applied is a matter of wisdom. You need to think. Likewise, when Paul says, children, obey your parents, does he mean absolutely all the time? Even though Paul is citing the fifth commandment written in stone by the finger of God, is Paul arguing that no hint of disobedience is ever acceptable? What if the parents are corrupt or engaged in horrible behavior? Pete Inns writes about how early church leaders used wisdom, new thinking, to spread the word of God. For example, in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council needed to exercise wisdom and discernment concerning Gentile believers particularly the issue of whether Gentiles were to be circumcised as an entryway to becoming Christians. You know that this was a big deal for the Jews. Being circumcised was part of the Abrahamic covenant with God. But it was a big deal for the Gentiles, too, who lived in a Greco-Roman culture where circumcision was rare. It was not a common thing. So the council, in their wisdom, compromised. They decided that circumcision was not required for Gentiles, but they did require four things. To abstain from foods sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. See, the Jerusalem Council came up with a wise solution to advance the gospel, one that they said seemed good to the Holy Spirit, one that didn't push Gentiles away, and in fact, it advanced the gospel, it advanced the kingdom, and one that did not offend unnecessarily their Jewish brothers and sisters. This was a good solution. And Peter N. says that this spirit-led wisdom is available to Christians, even today. Another example comes from the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, where he says his strategy is one of constant adaptation. Paul's strategy was to be Jewish with the Jews and to be like a Gentile 
with the Gentiles. Did you catch that? Paul was already adapting first century Jewish ideas to first century Gentile situations. Can we expect to do anything else? Can we imagine Paul wanting to go back in time to Moses' time? Of course not. Scott McKnight says that what we most need is not a return to the first or the fourth or the 16th or 18th century, but a fresh blowing of God's spirit on our culture in our day and in our ways. We need 21st century Christians living out the biblical gospel in 21st century ways. Even more, if we read the Bible properly, we will see that God never asked one generation to step back in time and live the way it had done before. No. God spoke in each generation in that generation's ways. You see, we need to listen to God speak to us in our world, through God's ancient word and through God's Holy Spirit to find a pattern of how to live in our world, in our culture, and in our times. In 1995, I read the Bible literally. And most of my knowledge came from my pastor, from conservative professors at Dallas Theological Seminary. And John MacArthur also helped me learn, who is known more recently for refusing to have his congregation wear masks during the COVID-19 pandemic. I don't think I could have been in a more conservative environment, and that shaped my views. As far as I was concerned, when I read the Bible, God said it, I believed it, that settled it. So you probably aren't going to be surprised that at that time, I believed in a seven-day creation because I I thought that's what the Bible said. I had no idea that the Genesis creation could have been poetry, beautiful words that were arguing that the God of the Bible was bigger and stronger than all the gods that the other nations believed in. I believed in the story of Noah and a literal worldwide flood because that's what I was taught. I had no idea that other nations had their own flood stories, and they were similar to the Noah story. These stories were not only similar, but also much older than the version we find in the Bible. So logically speaking, if the biblical versions of these stories are similar and younger, then the biblical writers weren't working from scratch. I affirmed being a complementarian, meaning that men and women have different but complementary roles and responsibilities in marriage, family life, and religious leadership. Though I should say, Tammy and I have never lived that way because she is way too strong, way too smart, and way too wise. I had no idea that the cultural context of the early church was ancient and patriarchal and based on Roman household codes. That was the context of the early church. And thank goodness our culture is changing. We've made big strides forward, but we still have so much more to go. I believed women shouldn't preach in church because Paul would know, right? That's a joke. 
I had no idea that when we read the Bible, we need to consider not just the text, but the actual situation. Maybe a statement by Paul was meant for a unique circumstance, a particular community, rather than something that applies to all women in all places at all times. I had no idea that the Bible was full of great examples of women leading and teaching like Deborah and Miriam and Ruth and Esther and Junia and Priscilla. And we certainly can't believe that women shouldn't preach when we hear the depth and powerful teaching and preaching from our very own Pastor Danielle in City. And I have to say, I am proud to sit at their feet and to learn from them. I believed homosexuality was a sin because I thought the Bible was literally very clear on this. There are seven passages in the Bible that are used to condemn homosexuality. But I didn't know that each of these clobber verses can be credibly argued against theologically if you consider them in their historical context and in the original language. I didn't know that people were picking and choosing, that they read Leviticus, that a man should not lie with another man, but somehow they ignored other verses in Leviticus, like do not wear clothing with two kinds of material, or do not cut your hair at the sides of your head, or don't get a tattoo, or how they think instruction from the word nature used in Romans 1 about homosexuality is permanent and applicable today but the use of the word nature in 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen in regards to men and women's hair length is evidently disposable. The truth is, I was highly confident in my beliefs. I studied the Bible, but I had little breadth of knowledge. I was a man of one book. If you asked me a question about the Bible, I had the right answer. And everyone I went to church with had the same answer. We all read the, same, the Bible the same way, which was through, through our tradition, and nothing changed. There were no questions because we thought we had figured, out, figured it all out. Can you relate? We knew what church God went to, what Bible translation God prefers, and how God would vote. We knew the kind of, kinds of people God approves of. And as it turns out, God liked all the same things that we liked. My beliefs, they were sealed in my church echo chamber where I only heard from people who intensified and validated my beliefs. But I changed. I evolved as I began to hear stories from people who suffered in ways that I'd never experienced experience or rarely saw. I listened to podcasts like The Holy Post, The Bible for Normal People, and The Liturgists. I read books from Rachel Held Evans, Jamar Tisby, Donald Miller, Austin Channing Brown, Brian Stevenson, and N.T. Wright. I look for new commentaries with different perspectives from people like Pete Enns and A.J. Levin and new voices like Phil Vischer, yes, the guy who created VeggieTales. And it was refreshing. It was. As I discovered new things, new perspectives, and new answers, 
I felt like I was waking up, that my faith was being renewed as I began to rethink and unlearn. Now, I'm not trying to tell you what to believe or that you need to believe as I do. This is spark, and we can all have different opinions, and I respect you if we differ. But I will say, if we truly want to fear God and keep the commandments, then we should try our best, myself included, we should try our best to make sure the way we interpret and apply the commandments are actually what God meant. And if the way we live out the commands doesn't align with loving God and loving others, then there's probably a problem. If our interpretation of the commands doesn't bring good news to the poor, good news for the brokenhearted, the marginalized, and the impressed, then maybe it's time to rethink. If the commands continue to subjugate and disenfranchise women, people of color, immigrants, people of different faiths, and the LGBTQ plus community, then maybe it's time to think again. And I think this is the process. I'm sure it's a process that some, down, some years down the line, maybe 10 years from now or 20 years from now, we're going to have to rethink and unlearn some of the things we are doing or saying today that we will eventually see what we are doing and saying as abhorrent or unjust or regrettable, and we must push to change and evolve in the future. I think Ecclesiastes is a good book. It's a good book for all of us, and especially for people who have weathered storms, who have seen life, and have every reason to be despondent and to be in despair. And the ultimate wisdom expressed in Ecclesiastes is to stay the course, to acknowledge like Kohelet that life can be tough, and yet to keep moving forward and trusting anyway, that God somehow, someday, will make it all make sense. And as we wait for that day, we must continue to do what matters, which is to fear God and keep the commandments because that is the duty of all mankind. And that's what people of wisdom do. In the sermon today, we have focused primarily on that phrase, fear God and keep his commandments. As we go into a time of communion now, I want to talk a little bit about that phrase, uh, the, at least the first part, fear God. Because in our, the way we interpret or understand those words, it's kind of scary. It kind of paints God in a way that he's punitive and harsh. And it's not the picture that Jesus portrays. And so there's a person named, a poet, a poet and author named Brendan Manning, who has a description of what it means to fear God, which I want you to consider as we go into communion. And it is this, to fear God is silent wonder radical amazement and affectionate awe at the infinite goodness and love of God. For in the night in which he was portrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup 
gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome to the table.